Welcome to the Variety Hour, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mouth. I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Welcome to Talk Money. And now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. And good morning and welcome to today's program. I read an article recently from the Social Security Advisors that talked about um, some things that I found rather disturbing. In fact, I'm going to share it with you. It says 70% of Americans leave money on the table when selecting their Social Security benefits. And in fact, it's $74,000 per individual. Per couple, it's about $120,000 that's left on the table just because they made some mistakes. And I know Social Security is complicated, but there's, here's my concern. Here's, here's the problem. People, and they, I don't think we mean to do this, but people rely on what their friends say. And usually that friend just doesn't have a clue. One of our most respected and requested guests is with us today, Kurt Zornowski of Zornowski Consulting, our Social Security expert, and he is here to discuss the 2020 Social Security cost of living adjustments and answer your questions. And believe me, Kurt has the answers to the questions. In the second half of the program, Jason Harrington will discuss the question that I think is on a lot of people's mind. How do I work with a financial advisor? Now, I wouldn't think that would be a question if you listen to this program on a regular basis, but... We're going to answer the question because you ask it. How do I work with a financial advisor? Working with an advisor should be an enjoyable experience. It should not be adversarial and definitely should not be uncomfortable. But we so often hear that the experience is not always what it should be. Well, Jason is is here to share with us what to look for, the questions to ask when you have your first visit, and he'll share some very good reasons to be working with an experienced advisor. From our Did You Know file, something that most of you tell us that you really do like, we did some research to find these numbers, and I think you'll find them to be very interesting. Did you know since 1928, the S&P 500 has gained 12.9% during an election year when the nation's setting president ran for re-election? Now, since 1928, the S&P 500 has gained only 4.5% during an election when the sitting president is not seeking re-election. Of course, past performance is no indication of future performance. The Department of Commerce says consumer spending continues to be strong, reaching an all-time high in the third quarter of 2019. And Americans make up estimated 70% of our 215 trillion-dollar economy. Consumer spending by Chinese citizens, I know the trade wars on everybody's mind, make up an estimated 40% of their $14.2 trillion economy. We'll have to wait to see what the trade wars do to consumer spending for both countries. China's consumer spending has weakened in the last few months as a result of the trade war, and we have reached an all-time high in September. Here's some shocking information from me from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. If you think about it, you will understand why I think it's alarming, why I think it's shocking. 21, excuse me, 23.5% of the homeless population in the United States live in 
one state. One out of four in one state. You guessed it, California. It's just cost so much to live in the state of California. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to Talk Money at shoemakerfinancial.com. To find today's program on podcast or past programs, go to iTunes and search for Shoemaker Financial. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Coming up, Kurt Zornowski, questions you have asked about Social Security, and Jason Harrington, what do you do when you're working with a financial advisor? What questions should you be asking? You're listening to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is Talk Money. Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Secure and Financial Services are affiliated with Kurt Zarnowski or Zarnowski Consulting. The views and opinions expressed are those of Kurt Zarnowski only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Secure and Financial Services, Inc. or Shoemaker Financial. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Welcome back. I have got one of the most respected and requested guests in with us today. That's Kurt Zarnowski of Zarnowski Consultant. He is our Social Security expert. And when you hear he's on, he's going to be on, you send in your question. You go, you know, it's just like, okay, I got Kurt. I got Kurt. I want to talk to Kurt. I want to talk to Kurt. Well, we have him in uh, on the radio, on the telephone with us. He is in Boston, Mass. I guess, Kurt, are you in Boston today? Yeah, well, I'm outside of Boston, little town of Norfolk, Massachusetts, probably halfway between Boston and Providence, but yeah, count yeah. Boston. Good. Well, how's I'm assuming the, your weather is excellent. Well, no, actually not. A <laughs> little overcast, a little rainy, uh, probably close to 40 degrees. Oh, uh, well, uh, it's about the same here, but we, we we've got a beautiful day in store for us. But here, here's a thought for you. I know you want to talk about the fact sheet from Social Security, and I really do want to get into that. So let's start with that because I think they're so important, but I do have a couple of questions before sure. we get through today. Here's the thought. The cost of living adjustment, we know it as COLA. Talk about it. Sure. And, you know, one of the great things about the Social Security program is it is akin to the traditional defined benefit pension, which is going the way of the dodo these days. But with that defined benefit pension, you get a guaranteed stream of lifetime income. You become eligible to your pension and they pay you until you pass away. Well, the same same thing is true with Social Security. You become eligible for benefits. You're going to be able to collect right up until the time you pass away it's impossible to run out of your own Social Security money. But in addition to that, one of the hallmarks of Social Security is that it provides guaranteed inflation protection. You know, since 1972, when Congress changed the law, and going into effect in 1975, Social Security beneficiaries each year receive a cost-of-living adjustment in their Social Security payments. Now, that COLA is based on the increase in something called the Consumer Price Index for urban wage earners and clerical workers. It's a measure tracked by the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics. And the period of time that Social Security uses to determine the COLA is a comparison between the third quarter of one calendar year and the third quarter of the following calendar year. So, middle of October, Social Security announced that beginning in 2020, Social Security beneficiaries would receive a 1.6% cost-of-living adjustment in their Social Security payments. It'll show up in the benefits sent to them beginning in the month of January. And it's because between 
July, August, and September of 2018 and July, August, and September of 2019, that CPIW increased by 1.6%. This, you know, there's a lot of discussion these days about whether or not the CPIW is the proper measure in determining how much of an increase Social Security beneficiaries ought to get. But the important thing is that there is this guaranteed inflation protection, which is so important because, Jim, as we talked about on the show previously, people are living longer in retirement. And if you head into retirement and live another 20, 25, or maybe even 30 years, if you don't have some measure of inflation protection built into your Social Security payments, you know, the purchasing power basically falls off a cliff. So an important part of the Social Security program is you can't outlive your benefits and you get this guaranteed cost of living adjustment each year, but it's based on the increase in the CPIW from one year to the next. So it triggers a whole bunch of other increases, and those are all announced by Social Security at the same time. But the important thing for people to recognize is while these other changes, which we'll reference in a minute, get announced, in many cases, they're based on a different measure than the increase in prices. And in determining, for example, how much someone will need to earn to accrue a Social Security credit, the increase is based not on the increase in prices from one year to the next, but it's based on the increase in wages from one year to the next. So a whole bunch of different changes we can talk about, all announced at the same time, but people need to understand that the increase in their benefit is based on the increase in prices over a 12-month period. Some of these other increases are based on the increase in wages over the following, or the, the same 12-month period. So, for example, each year, as listeners know, there's a maximum level of earnings that someone has that are subject to Social Security tax, that 6.2% Social Security payroll tax. 2019, you paid Social Security tax in the first $132,900 that you make. Next year, 2020, you'll pay Social Security tax in the first $137,700 that you make. Now, you'll pay an additional 1.45% Medicare hospital insurance tax on every dollar you make, but you'll only pay that Social Security tax portion next year up to 137.7. Why is that important? Well, we talked in the past. Social Security benefits are calculated by averaging a lifetime of earnings, but people need to understand that in averaging earnings, Social Security only looks at and averages the earnings that had been subject to Social Security tax. So, for example, this year somebody could make a half a million dollars. They pay Social Security tax only on first $132,900 that they make, well, in calculating their benefit and averaging their earnings, Social Security doesn't average in the half a mil, so they just average in the 132.9. And again, next year that jumps to 137.7. Another increase referenced before is how much someone needs to earn in order to accrue a Social Security credit. And we talked in the past, you used to have to earn what were called quarters of coverage, now you get Social Security protection by earning credits, and credits are earned not based on when you happen to work, but the dollar amount of earnings that you have in a year subject to Social Security tax. This year, for example, you get one credit for each $1,360 that you make. Next year, that increases to one credit for each $1,410 that you make. We've talked in the past, though, 
you need to accrue 40 Social Security credits in order to be entitled to some type of retirement benefit based on your own work record, because you can earn a maximum of four credits during a calendar year. This year, for example, you have earnings of $5,440 or more. You've earned your four credits for the year. Next year, again, you can accrue a maximum of four credits during the year, but you have a total earnings of 56 40 or more, you've earned your four credits towards the 40 you need to qualify for benefits. One last increase to talk about, and then I'll turn it back to you. As we discussed on the show in the past, if you're under your full retirement age looking to collect benefits but intending to work at the same time, there's an earnings threshold that comes into play. This year, for example, you're under your full retirement age. You're allowed to make up to $17,640 without any loss in benefits. You make above that. doesn't mean you can't necessarily collect at all, but Social Security starts to hold back $1 in benefits for each $2 that you're over the threshold, $17,640 this year. Next year, that increases to $18,240. And it's earned income, wages, net income from self-employment. Unearned income doesn't count towards that. You make above that next year, Social Security holds back $1 in benefits for each $2 that you're over that threshold. But what hasn't changed is the fact that once you reach your full retirement age, whatever it happens to be based on your year of birth, there is no longer any earnings limitation imposed, and you can work and earn as much as you'd like without any loss of benefits whatsoever. So a whole bunch of changes coming down the road for 2020. Announced every year in the fall, come into play starting in January of the following year. But based on two different measures, increase in prices determines how much of an increase somebody sees in their benefit payment. But the increase in average wages in the country determines some of these other changes that come into play starting in January of 2020. If you just tuned in, my guest is frequent and uh, respected and often requested, and that is... It is, you know, he's the man. He is Kurt Zornowski of Zornowski Consulting, and he's talking about the Social Security changes for 2020. Kurt, let me ask you this. I mean, I'm assuming that if a person is listening to you and trying to write all this down, they can get the fact sheet from Social Security by going online, correct? Absolutely. At the Social Security website, they've got uh, all kinds of different information about the 2020 COLA. Absolutely. All right, so that's security.gov, basically. Okay, that's important, but there's so many changes. Kurt, do you feel that, I mean, people need to understand this. We've got some questions we're going to get into, but I guess this gets, it appears to seem to be confusing. And so all of a sudden, instead of them taking the time to go to the fact sheet, we have people that start listening to friends and relatives and get what we call uh, maybe not good information. Is that, is that the best way to say it? Natty told Hattie about the things she saw. <laughs> exactly. A woolly dog and a, well, we'll leave yeah, it at that. We could go there. But the point is, you, it, that's what happens to a lot of people. I had read during the monologue that so many people leave so much money on the table. In fact, Social Security came back, the Social Security advisors came back, and they had a number. And I was shocked. It was $74,000 over a lifetime. is left on the table by, by a lot of people, on average, not knowing how to select how to go through their Social Security. What do you advise people to do? What do you say to them? I mean, this is, I know you do a lot of this and you talk to a lot of people, but the reality is if you could write it down in one sentence, what would you try to say to somebody when they get to this point or they're 
preparing for this point, what should they be thinking about? Yeah, and I generally I don't offer advice. Uh, that's your business. Um, but basically, my responsibility, I try and help people understand and help them make what I call an informed decision about when to collect benefits. And the fundamental principle is you start sooner, you get a lower monthly amount for the rest of your life. You wait longer before you start to collect, you get a higher payment amount for the rest of your life. Now, the program was designed to be actuarially neutral, meaning you live to average life expectancy, then you were supposed to come out with roughly the same amount of total benefits over your lifetime, regardless of when you started. You started sooner, collected, therefore, in theory, for a longer period of time. You're given a lower individual monthly amount. You wait longer. Well, in theory, by waiting, you'll be collecting for a shorter period of time. You're given a higher monthly amount. Again, designed to be actuarially neutral. But my personal view tends to be, if asked to opine, because life expectancy is increasing, I tend to think good things come to those who wait. But again, it's an individual choice, an individual decision. People need to focus on health, longevity. Then they need the money. They're going to keep working. All those factors come into play. And again, I never tell people what they should do. I try and help them fully understand what they can do. But ultimately, Jim, as we talked about, it's a longevity decision. You know, it's a simple decision about when to collect. You just need to know when you're going to die. Nah, that's and, always uh, the key. <laughs> and uh, without that information, you're just making your best guess. Best guess. You're right. Well, here's the question that came in. I was married to my ex-husband for three years, and we divorced. After two years, we remarried. Here's the question. Do the 10 years needed, and this was important, they knew that they needed 10 years to get their Social Security, his Social Security benefit, need to be consecutive years or a total of 10 years. We've been married for eight years since we remarried. If I added, she said, if I added the first time we were married, it would be 11 years. So with she qualifying for his, because they've been married total 11, but not consecutively 11 years, 10 years. Sure, we'll deal, deal with this in, in, in two ways. First and foremost, it's kind of a... Uh, depressing question because it sort of leads me to think she's going to get divorced again and wondering whether they add up again. I don't the important know. Thing, the important thing for people to understand is this 10-year duration of marriage requirement only enters in once a couple has been divorced. In the current situation with this couple, for regular spousal benefits, you simply need to have been married for one year because in this second marriage, They've been married for at least one year. As long as they remain married, she's eligible for spousal benefits based on his work record, and the regular rules apply. So people frequently confuse that and think that just for regular spousal benefits, you need to have been married for 10 years. The 10-year duration of marriage requirement only enters in in cases of divorce. So that leads to the second part. Well, they divorce again. And... Does this three years and then eight years, can you add them up together? And since it exceeds 10, does it count? And the answer is no, unfortunately. The law requires a 10-year duration of marriage requirement, yes, from first date of marriage to final divorce. But the key point is the marriage must have been in place in each of the 10 years during that 10-year duration of marriage requirement. So, for example, 
they got married, they got divorced, then remarried, as they did, if they had remarried within the following calendar year of when they got divorced in this situation, yeah, it would count. You could add them all together. But in this question, because there's more than a one-year break between the divorce and remarriage, you can't add the two together. But again, right now, as long as they're married, because they've been married for more than a year, she's good to go, can collect spousal benefits when the time comes. You know, I have no clue if she's contemplating a divorce. That's a great point. Maybe it was a trick question. But what you're saying is consecutive years is what counts if she did get the divorce. So that's what you're saying. So so you get divorced in uh, June of of one year. So you've been married for for three years, get married and uh, get divorced in June the following year, following calendar year. You remarry at some point during that year. Well, then, because there has not been a full calendar year break, then you can add those two periods of marriage together. But if you're not married in 10 consecutive years, you can't just add up the two separate uh, uh, pieces of marriage and and have them count towards that 10-year duration marriage requirement. Very good. When we come back, I'm going to ask the question about do-over. You heard that before? Can you can you do something in Social Security and say, oh, I made a mistake, I want to do-over? Well, Kurt's going to give us an answer. We have a question from someone that says they did it in October of this year. Can they can they redo? Can they do a do-over? We're going to find out from Kurt if you just tuned in. It's Kurt Zornowski. He is the president and founder of Zornowski Consultant, a frequent guest of ours, respected and requested. He's the expert when it comes to Social Security And immediately following Kurt, you do not want to miss Jason Harrington. We're talking about how do you work with a financial advisor when it's unpleasant? What do you do? That's important to know. Stay with us. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and you're listening to Talk Money. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. Jim Shoemaker and Jason Harrington are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, my guest today is Kurt Zarnowski. He is a frequent, respected, and requested guest here, and he does a great job talking about Social Security. His topic today has been the Social Security changes for 2020, and if you didn't get them all and as he was going through them, because Kurt just uh, loads up information and allows us to catch as much as we can, go to the fact sheet at Social Security. I think you said go to www.gov. .socialsecurity.gov. Got it. All right, yep. socialsecurity.gov. You can get the fact sheet. Kind of Maybe you might read it and become as smart as Kurt. No, not going to happen. All right, Kurt, last question, and this is one I think is a great question for the misindividual. He says, the do-over. He says, I know there's something about do-over. Now, I know you're going to want to talk a little bit about that because I know you will explain that maybe we need to, he's misled there. But here's his question. Please explain how long I can go before I am not able to withdraw an application. I'm 67. I filed for my benefit in October of this year. I thought I was going to retire. I, have, I mean, he, I know that's what he's saying, that I'm not retiring. I'm going to wait until age 70 to retire. I'm still working. I plan to work. I want to withdraw my application. Can he do that? Sure. But a little bit of history first, Jim. Going back prior to December of 2000. 
intent. Well, Social Security has always had a process by which if you changed your mind about collecting retirement benefits, you could undo what you had done. The technical term was you would withdraw your application and for Social Security to grant that withdrawal request, you need to do one thing and one thing only. You simply repaid the benefits that you had received. Now, the key thing was the repayment was the principal only. Social Security never charged interest. You simply repaid the exact amount that you had collected. So prior to December of 2010, what had arisen was a recognition that you could, for example, apply for benefits when you turn 62. Collect, 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 and then at age 70, you didn't have to wait till 70, but you would maximize it by waiting till age 70. You could, in the old days, go back to Social Security, say, I changed my mind. I want to withdraw my application. And Social Security would say, fine. They'd figure out how much you had collected during that, in our example, eight-year period. Now, you would repay simply the principal. What people recognized was, in this situation, you would in essence, received an interest-free loan from Social Security by receiving the money for eight years, being able to do with it what you wanted to, and repaying only the principal. So at the end of 2010, the rules were tightened up. The commissioner made a decision that if you legitimately change your mind, you now have one year in which you can withdraw your application repay any benefits you may have received without interest being charged still, and then you would be free to reapply at whatever point made the most sense for you. And you can do that once in a lifetime. So for the listener's question, started collecting October of 2019. Because he's within 12 months of collecting benefits, he certainly has the right and the option to go to Social Security and withdraw the application he had previously filed. Again, for Social Security to grant the withdrawal, he'd simply repay any benefits that he may have collected, no interest charged, and then he'd be free to reapply at whatever point made the most sense for him down the road. So he, in this case, he's within his 12-month window of being able to withdraw. But the other point I want to make is this, and I think we talked about this on prior shows. Under the rules... Once you have reached your full retirement age for Social Security purposes, one of the options that you have is to go to Social Security and request voluntary payment suspension. And by asking to have your payments suspended, it means you won't collect anything, but because you're over your full retirement age and not collecting, you'll begin to accrue delayed retirement credits and increase your payment by two-thirds percent per month, 8% per year, right up until age 70. When would this be helpful? Well, for example, you've got somebody who starts to collect retirement benefits at age 62, hits full retirement age, and let's say it's age 66, recognizes, you know what? I made a mistake. I should have waited. I need a higher payment amount. Well, because the person's been collecting for more than 12 months, they don't have the option of withdrawing, repaying, and reapplying. But because they're at full retirement age, they can call up Social Security and say, I'd like you to suspend my benefits. And 
person doesn't have to wait until age 70 to resume payments. They can ask to have the spigot turned back on at whatever point they want. But for each month that they opt not to collect, they'll see that lower age 62 payment amount be increased by two-thirds percent per month, 8% per year. And if they wait all the way until age 70 with that full retirement age of 66, their payment will have been increased by 32%, and they will have more than made back the 25% reduction they had incurred by starting at age 62. But the important thing is this. Under the rules since April of 2016, if you ask to have your payments suspended, Social Security is also required to suspend the benefits of anyone else who might be collecting on your record. So you've got a situation where this totally gender neutral, but let's say the husband, he's been collecting, his wife is collecting a spousal benefit based on his work record. If he opts to have his payments suspended, Social Security is also going to suspend the wife's spousal benefit at the same time. So this decision to voluntarily suspend your payments may not be right for everybody, but for folks who have been collecting for more than 12 months, who no longer have the ability to withdraw, repay, and reapply, at full retirement age, you do have the option of requesting voluntary payment suspension for as long as it makes sense, right up until age 70. Oh, it's amazing how you can explain something so simply. That's why I think everybody respects and you're often requested as being a guest because I think I got that. I think I understood that. Now, there's a lot to that. So you got to think through that. But, uh, Kurt, I think people need to understand they can come back and listen to this podcast later because you identified the issues and gave us the the ways to work through that. Thank you so much. Uh, You know, you do a great job. I know the listeners enjoy you and are always interested in what you're going to say. You're a frequent guest, sir, respected and requested. Happy Thanksgiving to you, man. Hey, we'll talk to you next year. All right. Take care, my friend. Yes, sir. Well, it's been good to have Kurt Zarnowski because he always does a phenomenal job explaining to us the benefits of Social Security. Well, my next guest is going to help us understand some of the reasons and some of the ways that we need to maybe evaluate what's going on with an advisor. If you've had a bad experience, and it's amazing that we kind of found out that some people had had some bad experiences, and we wanted to dig into that. And so we've asked Jason Harrington to come into the studio with us and walk us through some things to look for, some questions to ask. So welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, sir. Always glad to be here. Pleasure. You know, here's the thought. Too often, I think people hire an advisor without giving any consideration to the quality of their selection. I mean, they're going because, I know, Bob referred them or Sally said, you ought to talk to this guy. And when they carefully go through this choosing process, this selection process, in the advisor and they've made a decision, it's kind of like the advisor is putting his best foot forward. Right. And they, they're wanting to demonstrate their ability. Then they get a little complacent and they don't return the call. I had someone yesterday to say, you know, I worked with someone way years ago and he would never return my call. And I'm going, eh, that's just not acceptable. So as a result of that, I think consumers don't evaluate. They don't go the process. They don't ask the question. So let's do this together. Let's walk through this. What do you see as the some of the categories that a person should consider when they're evaluating their advisor? Well, you make you make a great point about the follow up. A relationship with an advisor is not a 
a one-time meeting. Uh, and if clients need to go in, uh, our listeners need to go in when they're evaluating their the advisor that they would select based on this is someone I'm going to work with for a very, very long time. It's not about just what's happening in the moment. So um, there's a lot of, you know, economical and, you know, analytical choices you can make when evaluating an advisor. A lot of clients get caught up in trying to determine cost and, you know, performance and a lot of that. And they fail to look back. Is this just someone that I like? Uh, and is it someone that I can spend time with and enjoy? Do they understand me and where I'm going th- and what I'm going through? Uh, and, you know, that's probably without regard to the other decisions, if you don't get that one right, then all the other decision making points that you use to select your advisor may be uh, may be off. You know, I like the word like. I mean, that mean I mean, I'm thinking, am I happy with this person? Right. Do I feel comfortable with this person? Am I can I have a good conversation with this person? When I finish the conversation, do I walk out of the office and go, "But that was great. I, I'm uplifted. I'm encouraged." Is it a or, good experience? Yeah, good experience. I like that. Yeah. Do you have like a good that. experience? And do do they? You know, do they get me? You know, are are we going through the same walks of life or have they experienced some of the same experiences I've had? Do we share similar belief systems, similar values? And so uh, if you're going to evaluate an advisor and if I had a a prospective client coming to evaluate me, I would be welcome and open to questions about, you know, my values, my what what are my goals? What kind of. What approach would I take in talking with them? I think that's important for a Can a I sum that up to saying a sense of transparency with the client? Absolutely. So transparency, Absolutely. you should expect some degree of transparency where the client feels they know you. That's right. Okay, that's it, good. It, it's, it's as much about a client getting to know an advisor as an advisor to get to know. It's a two-way street. There should be a, a relationship build there. The experience should be pleasurable, even if you're having to talk about maybe some difficult, you know, difficult situations or you're going through a tough time. You shouldn't walk out and dread going to see your financial That's advisor. That's a great point. I, I appreciate it. If you just tuned in, my guest is Jason Heritage. We're talking about how to work with an advisor. What are the expectations of working with a financial advisor? You know, I would have thought that this would not have been of a, uh, something of a question for us to dig into because if you listen to this program for the years that we've been on, and it have been many years that we've been doing this, you would kind of have that idea. But I, I appreciate the fact that someone said, I've not had a good experience, and I want to know more about that. And I think that's what we're trying to do. And Jason, I appreciate you digging into this and spending some time. I know, what about services that, that's being provided? Is this something that a client should say, okay, tell me what you do for me. I've now had a good conversation. I feel like you're tr- transparent. I've gotten to know you. We share some values of the same thought process. What about services? I think think that's a, a great point. The services that a, a financial planning firm or a financial planner offers to an, a, to a client should align with what the client's trying to accomplish. I think many times advisors are great at uh, the initial connection with an advisor, but they're not always, I mean, with a client, but they're not always great with that follow-up and ongoing process. So having a conversation with your advisor about what does it look like a year from now, two years from now, with regard to service uh, that that I would receive, you know, in, in my financial plan. You know, somebody told me, and it might have been you as we were discussing this, that 
services sometimes, I mean, you can back a dump truck and say, here's all of our services. That's right. And it, not a one of those applied to the client. That's right. Not, I mean, they're, they're great services. In fact, I mean, you spend tons of money, lots of time educating yourself. But the, if you say, well, I'm a, I have a chainsaw here and mm-hmm. we're going to chop trees, uh, you know, I hate to tell you, but I didn't ask you for a chainsaw. I needed a hammer. That's right. And we didn't bring it. So you got to look at what services are they of value to the client. Do they matter to me in yeah. my uh, in my decision making process? A lot of that is is a function of learning each other too. Um, you know, when you're uh, evaluating an advisor, does your advisor have a service platform that can adapt to your specific needs, or are they, you know, one way and only one way? Um, so I think that's important that a client uh, and listeners out there that. They feel comfortable enough to express this is the need that I have. This is how I want to be communicated with, how I want to be contacted, how often I'd like to to, to be contacted. Um, good advisors will welcome that feedback. That is so important, important because I think what I'm hearing you say, and I appreciate the comment, because the client, the, the person that's going to be receiving the services, need to select from this plethora of bunch of stuff. And say this is important to me. If I if you didn't do that, I would miss that. But at right. the same time, have the ability, the willingness to say, you don't do this, but I would like for you to do. That this. is correct. That is correct. And a good a good financial firm out there uh, will most likely have the abilities to make that pretty simple um, if they know. Um, it, it's helpful for. When uh, you're dealing with an, a client, or if I'm dealing with a client, if the client is willing to, you know, express their own desire with regard to, because you're right, many times we think what you want, and we're trying, and we're providing all of these things that are just not really that applicable to to the client. Talk life. about the fact that, as you as you say, when you're saying the services and things, what about the, this? Is something that we see a lot, team based. Versus the solo advisor. We only got just a few minutes on this before we take take a break. But team based versus solo. We're we're seeing a lot of that today in the industry, and I think that's an important conversation for uh, a client to consider. Um, you know, when you look at uh, an individual financial planner that works solo by himself, uh, I think the questions that the the clients need to ask is, what is their plan for retirement? What's their plan if they get sick? What's their plan if they're you know, on vacation or if they become disabled or die, you know, and how does that affect, you know, me as a client, if something were to happen in a solo practice, um, as opposed to a teaming practice where there may be always someone around for me to contact, it may not be my, you know, my main advisor, but there's succession, there's continuity, there's available availability of, of resources there for me to talk to. And we're seeing the client's have a, a desire for that. And so I think it's an important question That's to ask. The, the need to say, if there's somebody, if you're not here, who's the person? Right. That makes right. a lot of sense. Uh, if you just tuned in, oh. my guest is Jason Harrington. We're talking about how do you work with an advisor? What? Are, how do you evaluate? What questions should you be asking? Well, we discovered that the relationship should be one that's enjoyable. It should have a good conversation. And when you leave, it was a conversation that was saying, hey, it made me happy. It, I would be excited about what we're doing. You should always look for services. If you have a service that was not offered, you should have the willingness to say, hey, I need this service. I need you to do this. You need to be able to have a tough conversation with your advisor. 
When we come back, we're going to find out about investment performance, investment risk. And I tell you, we talked about team-based and solos, but at the end of the day, cost. That's right. That's going to be a biggie. So stay with us. You're listening to Talk Money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. My guest, Jason Harrington. Thank you for doing that. We'll be back in just a minute. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is Talk Money. If you have questions you'd like to have answered on the program, email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. Financial advisors do not provide specific tax or legal advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your own specific tax or legal situation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. And welcome back. My guest is Jason Harrington. We're talking about how do you work with a financial advisor, the evaluation of the advisor's performance. We've talked about a relationship, the one that's rewarding, that you feel good about, that you're happy with. And when you're done, it's you can say it's a good conversation. We're talking about different services. And one thing about your advisor's job is to apply his or her experience and knowledge to your entire financial situation to each part of your financial life, not just your investment portfolio or your insurance, but to look at you from a holistic standpoint, you're going to go through life changes and you need an advisor that's working with you from that perspective. And so, Jason, one of the questions that I think so many times it's important, but sometimes maybe it's not the most important, and that is investment performance. We think it's critical, but it's not just about investment performance. Now, that may sound kind of odd coming from someone who's, that's what we do, but, but you understand what I'm saying. Absolutely. How do you explain that? I think, I think what you're trying to, to share is that many times we measure investment performance based on what's happening right now in the moment. It's what we can feel. It's what we can see. We don't really have perspective or a, a client may not have perspective of that right now performance over the course of 10 or 15 or 20 years. And so I think when you're measuring an advisor based on the investment performance, the first thing to do is understand what are you measuring it against? Right. Um, and if you're measuring it against the wrong thing, you may be getting, you know, a mixed message. I think first and foremost, it's about determining what type of return do you need to earn in order to accomplish the goals in the time horizon that you have and you measure your investment performance based on that number, not the S and P 500 necessarily, or those are good indicators for us. And we use them. We look at them every day. Uh, but making sure that when you're measuring your investment performance and you're looking at the, the competitive performance of that, is the client measuring it against the right benchmark? You know, you say that, and then I, I totally understand what you're saying. An investment risk, you know, you, are they at the comfort level? And the client needs to be willing to say, I think we're taking too much risk, or maybe we're not taking enough risk. But you got to have a good discussion there. It can't just be, well, I'm taking too much risk, or I'm not taking enough risk. you got to kind of add that to that. What do you say to someone who's got that thought process? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is go through a pretty detailed risk assessment process. Uh, a lot of clients that we see have not done that. When, when my mother-in-law says, well, I'm a conservative investor, 
and you say you're a conservative investor, that may mean that you want 70% of your investments in stock. <laughs> and when she says she's a conservative investor, that means she wants her money in her freezer. <laughs> so I do get that. So we, you know, and that's, that's, that's fine. That's common. That's okay. But I think as an advisor, we can't just hear the word I'm conservative. We need to get detailed into that to understand and align our language. And so the client needs to be willing to express that. And the advisor's got to ask the question. It's got to uncover what that conservative means. Okay. And there's an, there are assessment tools out there that you can use to uh, assess assess like how much risk are you willing to take i think that's critical so we talked about a few minutes ago team-based versus solo and i thought that was so critical because i think sometimes that is helping that person know that there's more people behind the individual than just the individual and that's that's critical so let me throw this out at you when does the client need to ask about cost and what do they ask i think they ask it's it is a fair question to ask right out the gate um you know what you pay pay for financial services is a very important decision making factor, uh, and I think the the client should ask if the cost is based on a flat fee. Um, some some firms out there will charge fees for their planning services. They'll charge fees for mani- managing their money. They'll They'll combine some of those things, and I think it's important for a a client to understand. And I think the advisor, if the client hasn't asked, then I think your advisor should be forthcoming and answering that question for them. And there's nothing wrong with it being fee and commission or commission only. You just have to know what it is and what you're paying for and be willing to be up front and ask. And ask. And let the advisor explain it to you. Yep. And make sure that they you understand the cost structure. Evaluating an advisor is a difficult thing to do, especially you some people that don't confront things. So you've helped us today. Thank you for that. If you would like to, you know, get more information about that, you can call Jason at 757-5757. Feel free to call him, ask him about that. He'll give you some additional information from that that about that particular subject. And it's a tough subject. It's important. You've been listening, of course, to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. My guest, Kurt Zarnowski and Jason Harrington. If you'd like additional information for Jason, as I just said, and you'd like to talk with him personally, call him at 757-5757. He's more than willing to help you understand some of the things he's talked about. We hope you've enjoyed today's program. As always, thanks for listening. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We will get them on the program. And to find today's program on podcast or past programs, go to iTunes and search for Shoemaker Financial. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Thank you, Jason, for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I love it. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and thank you so much for listening. This is Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker and Jason Harrington are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Oh,